0: Today, one third of the human race, two billion people, live in 27 nations founded on a single ideology. That one ideology in each of these nations is represented by a single political party. All other political parties are prohibited. All the laws, all the institutions are pervaded by the spirit of that ideology. No one who deviates from party doctrine is allowed to hold any post of public responsibility. Posts of any significance in these nations are posts of public responsibility. If one is a citizen of one of these nations, one must either adhere to that ideology or settle for a life of obscurity in a hard, low-paid job. If one does settle for such a life of obscurity... He does so with the knowledge that whatever cultural life or whatever entertainment will be available in his leisure hours will be carefully censored and monitored by bureaucrats who do (laughs) adhere to that ideology. If one enters into opposition in such a nation, one will either be Imprisoned immediately, or declared insane, or dismissed from one's job, then arrested for vagrancy, and then imprisoned. If one wishes to emigrate from such a country, one finds that one cannot do so without permission, a permission almost impossible to obtain. If one tries to leave without permission, one is shot. All these countries have been taken over in the last 70 years. The takeovers have always been by force, but have usually followed wars or periods of political and cultural penetration. In countries not taken over or not yet taken over, the adherents of the ideology in question, form and manipulate complex networks of pressure groups, both cultural and political. These pressure groups attack the institutions of the other countries as oppressive and promise liberation in the name of human freedom. The name of this ideology is Marxism. It was essentially the creation of one man, an impoverished and unemployed intellectual who a century and a quarter ago worked it into finished form in the reading room of a large public library. The man's name is Karl Marx. His purpose in creating the ideology was first to set forth a consistent worldview offering a radical critique of the society of freedom in which he lived. And secondly, to found on that consistent worldview a revolutionary movement which would destroy the society of He was criticizing. Intellectual criticism followed by destruction was Marx's plan. By this double barreled attack, he expected the world capitalist order to be brought down and another substituted for it. Marx had an assistant. Not surprisingly, the assistant was a businessman. Friedrich Engels, the junior partner of a cotton manufacturing firm, Ehrman and Engels, of Manchester, England, the very city that had become a world symbol of capitalist activity and capitalist thought. Engels was not only Marx's intellectual helper, but his main source of economic support. And he even offered him an extra unusual kind of support, which we will go into later when we come to some of the details of Marx's personal life. If any proof were needed that abstract ideas are of the utmost significance for the lives and destinies of human beings, Marxism would be that proof. Marxism would be worthy of study simply for the purpose of tracing the way in which ideas influence events. But, of course, there's another and more compelling motive for studying Marxism. That reason is to understand the nature of the force that has, for generations, challenged the modern capitalist world from without and corroded it from within. To understand the movement, we must understand its ideology and the relation of that ideology to its political and military actions. It is to such understanding that these four lectures are dedicated. Let us begin our inquiry into Marxist ideology, therefore. The ideology involves a systematic outlook on the world. Marxist philosophy, Marxist economics, sociology, history, anthropology. The whole system consists of a series of theses and claims with supporting arguments. I propose to examine these doctrines as they were stated by Marx and by later important Marxist writers. I will note stages of Marx's intellectual development and important additions made by later thinkers. I think it will be clear in the course of these lectures that between the earlier and the later Marx, between Marx and the major Marxist thinkers who came after him, there is a fundamental unity of values and outlook, a fundamental consistency of intentions. To be sure, there are contradictory tendencies in Marxism, but these occur within the same philosophy and emanate from the same sense of life, confronting different historical circumstances or different facts of reality. Am I going too fast? It's all right? Present velocity is okay. Okay. (laughs) I propose, as I've said, uh, to study Marxism as a set of doctrines. But these doctrines are answers to questions. And the questions themselves have presuppositions. A truly dynamic understanding of Marxism involves a grasp of the questions which it is attempting to answer and the assumptions on which these questions are based. To understand the questions with their assumptions and the answers is to understand both the logical structure of Marxism and the nature of its appeal. Marxism, when it appeared in the mid-nineteenth century, was the fruit of a movement of thought only a hundred years old. I will call the adherence of this movement of thought the secular discontents of the modern world. By the modern world, I mean the increasingly free, rational, capitalistic, technological society that had been growing in Western Europe since the Renaissance, and which had come to its highest flowering in America. But I also mean the unique spirit and world outlook of this society the modern world outlook saw nature as governed by impersonal laws, as intelligible to man's reason, and therefore as open to man's control. It taught that man's survival, well-being, and happiness were achievable on this earth And that moral worth, moral worth belongs to those who achieve it. It taught that individuals should take themselves as ends, that individuals have rights, and that relationships between individuals should be by agreement rather than by force. The modern world had supplanted the medieval world. And the modern world outlook had supplanted the medieval world outlook. The medieval world had been based on force and status. Its economy was, compared to that of the modern world, stagnant. Its technology was, again, compared to that of the modern world, primitive. The medieval world outlook saw the universe as a household in which God was the parent and men were the children. God loved men with a warm and comforting love, on condition that they adhered to a code of duties largely incomprehensible and unrelated to their survival and happiness in this life, or at least if they repented of having failed to do so. The two worlds, the medieval and the modern, were essentially different. But the modern world had emerged from the medieval world, and it still carried with it much medieval baggage in the form of institutions and values. This was particularly the case with the values. Vast numbers of people throughout the whole modern period have adhered, have adhered or still adhere to medieval values, even when they have discarded the medieval religious beliefs. Many people who are completely devoid of religious belief still adhere to medieval values without the metaphysical support which a theology would give to such beliefs. This has been so since the 18th century. These are the people Uh, I am referring to as the secular discontents of the modern world. The secular discontents of the modern world. And that is really the main subject of this introductory lecture uh, to Marxism because we're trying to find out, first of all, the nature of its appeal when it came on the scene. I would define a person of this type, that is a secular discontent of the modern world in the following way. One, he holds to Judeo-Christian ethics. Two, he has very largely lost the religious beliefs, which alone would give him a metaphysical foundation for these values. Still, he judges and even condemns the modern world for falling short of these values. And finally, he concludes that the problem has to be solved by any means other than rejecting the Judeo-Christian ethics. These discontents have found their sense of life eloquently voiced by philosophers, novelists, poets, essayists, artists, all kinds of intellectuals who are themselves profoundly alienated from the modern world with its factories and stores, its bustling cities and highways, its emphasis on reason, science, technology, business. They hated above all the modern world's celebration of achievement, Just think of how Kierkegaard and Dostoevsky poured out their hatred and contempt on the great industrial exposition that occurred in the middle of the century with its crystal palace. Such people, of course, were right from their own point of view to choose such a symbol to identify what they hated. The crystal palace was a symbol of achievement of freedom, of reason. Some of these discontents, of course, tried to find their way back into the supernatural by way of epistemological devices of indescribable corruption. Others devoted themselves to dreaming and planning for a heaven here on earth A heaven here on earth wherein all wants were automatically taken care of. A world of warm, loving relationships in which each person was valued for his intentions, wholly apart from what he delivered. This was what they called loving a person for himself, in quotes. Loving a person for himself. Although that is hardly a correct description of what they actually meant. Sometimes this coming dream world was regarded as a revival of the Middle Ages, whose glories and joys the industrial world had allegedly destroyed. At other times, these dreamers used another symbol, a symbol which Marx mentioned in the Communist Manifesto, not approvingly, however, the symbol of the New Jerusalem, taken from the book of Revelation, the last book of the New Testament. The author of that book, which modern thinkers, uh, which modern biblical scholars regard as partly a Jewish document and partly a Christian document, the author of that book had predicted a final struggle between the forces of good and evil at the Battle of Armageddon. Culminating in the destruction of the forces of Satan, by which was meant Judea, by which was meant Greco-Roman civilization, Hellenistic civilization, and the Roman Empire, and the descent from heaven of a new and perfect Jerusalem, a city in which the streets were paved with gold, a city from which all tears were wiped away and all suffering banished. Quote, for the former things are passed away, Revelation 21.4. Some of those, I realize it's perhaps not quite the custom to quote <laughs> biblical verses at these meetings, but occasionally one gets into a kind of ideological bind and uh, has to <laughs> sort of nail down the source. Some of those whom I have called the discontents of modern industrial civilization in the 18th and 19th century avidly seized upon this theological image of the New Jerusalem, and that's what Marx is referring to in the Communist Manifesto. But they reinterpreted it in a secular sense. Their New Jerusalem was to be an earthly utopia, you see, they are the people that the moral majority have come to call secular humanists. You understand the, the relationship you know, here today. Secular humanists are going to bring down the Christian heaven on earth. The New Jerusalem was to be built by men after an earthly battle, a battle in which the forces of good, as they conceived it, were out over the partisans of the Industrial Revolution. This battle was conceived originally as a struggle of ideas, a mental battle. Now, here are the words of the poet William Blake, written about 1800. And did the countenance divine shine forth upon our clouded hills, and was Jerusalem builded here among these dark satanic mills? Bring me my bow, of burning gold, bring me my arrows of desire, bring me my spear, old clouds unfold, bring me my chariot of fire. I will not cease my mental fight, nor shall my sword sleep in my hand till we have built Jerusalem in England's green and pleasant land. This tradition was just waiting for its marks. We have here the sense of alienation from capitalism, alienation from the modern industrial world, We have the vision of an ideal society, green, pleasant, pastoral, flowing with milk and honey. We have the vision of an earthly struggle to destroy the modern order and to inaugurate that ideal society. Marx will take up these ideas, radically revising and transforming them, to be sure, but keeping their original inspiration and remaining faithful to their original presuppositions. What Marx did, in fact, was to round out the tradition, make it more consistent, make it more persuasive to a far wider spectrum of people. And finally transform it from a merely intellectual challenge into a political and military challenge to the modern world, the most massive challenge, in fact, which that world has yet faced. I have said that Marx is the final fruit of the anti-modern tradition. He perfected it, but he would not have been possible without it. To understand Marx, we must place him within the tradition of the secular discontents of the modern world and see how he solved the problems of that movement of discontent. In this four-lecture study, I propose to look first at Marx's intellectual development and show how he wrestled with one after another of the philosophical problems posed in his day by the anti-modern tradition. Marx was born in the Rhineland in 1818 in the city of Trier, T-R-I-E-R, an old Roman town. His Jewish family owed their political emancipation to the Enlightenment. Later, in the reaction that followed the fall of Napoleon, the Prussian Minister of Justice threatened to deprive Marx's father of his position of counselor at law to the state court on grounds of his Jewish faith. Marx's father, Heinrich Marx, solved this problem with little or no violation of his convictions, which were those of an Enlightenment deist. In a Catholic city, he became a liberal Protestant, one of 200. As he put the matter to young Karl, everybody should submit to the faith of Newton and Locke. Heinrich Marx was a fervent classical liberal. Actually, pro-capitalist. He belonged to a local revolutionary club dedicated to the principles of what Marxists have come to call the bourgeois revolution. The tricolor, you see. This club, the Casino Club, was always under the surveillance of the semi-feudal Prussian government which by now controlled the Rhineland. And there is no doubt that Heinrich Marx constantly displayed the courage of his classical liberal convictions by proclaiming them in the face of governmental disfavor. Having noted the father's political orientation, I must now identify the first intellectual influence on Carl, that came from outside his own family. It is reasonably certain that around 1830 to 35, as a very young man, he became a disciple of Immanuel Kant. As a result of the combined influence of his Lutheran pastor Josef Cooper, Cooper, and his high school history teacher Hugo Wittenbach, uh, and also his future father-in-law Baron von Westphalen. All three of these men were Kantians and very probably influenced Marx for about five years, from 1832 to 1837, Karl's mind was saturated by an atmosphere that combined Kantianism with heady German romantic poetry. This period lasted from his second year of high school gymnasium to the second year of his university career. Now, adolescence is a time of profound importance for intellectual formation. So I want to spend just a few moments to determine exactly what was the impact of Kant on Marx. This was the early impact. Later on he received a second dose of Kant through Hegel, but this was the early and immediate impact. Kant was one of the discontents of the modern world although he saw himself as a true son of the Enlightenment. Kant saw the modern world as a problem because basically he, Kant, accepted the Christian moral ideal. For the adherent of Christian ideals, moral worth has little to do with the ability to survive and to achieve happiness in this world. You have this very brilliantly uh, spelled out in Professor Peacock's article, Kant and Self-Sacrifice. Indeed, as Kant saw, it, he who truly practices the Christian virtues must, as Kant saw, it, find himself unhappy and in danger of not surviving. On the other hand, he who does not practice the Christian virtues often finds himself happy and surviving very well, thank you. Like those fellows driving the white pimp-mobiles, you know, in New York City, uh, 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 who seem to be getting along fine, practicing the most corrupt sort of uh, values. There is, therefore, a conflict, its consort, between what is and what ought to be. This cannot be tolerated. What is has to go. But go in what sense? According to Kant, what is can be eliminated merely by an intellectual revolution. This revolution consists in redefining what is, namely reality, as mere appearance. The whole realm of appearance consists of the physical universe as empirical science reveals it, an impersonal system of nature, and man as empirical knowledge reveals him, namely a being who finds his end in achievement and happiness. Empirical knowledge, according to Kant, reveals neither true nature nor true man. Well, what does reveal to us true nature and true man? Basically, Kant's answer is faith. Well, what does faith have to tell us about reality? First, faith identifies the real essence of man, the real essence of man. The real essence of man is not a concrete individual seeking his well-being and happiness in this world. The real essence of man is an abstract self shorn of all personal, individual characteristics such as desires and emotions. This self, this abstract self, to express itself. It achieves such self-expression by legislating for itself universal moral laws like the categorical imperative. Laws which have no connection with anybody's desires, values, or happiness. It then obeys such laws regardless of the consequences. By our good will, that is, by our intention to obey such floating laws, we achieve true moral worth. Now, Kant tells us where he got these ideas. He got them from Rousseau. He says, quote, Newton was the first to discover order and regularity in nature. Rousseau was the first to discover beneath the varying forms of human nature the deeply concealed essence of man, Unquote. Again, in another place, referring to the same discovery, quote, This is the great discovery of our age. Unquote. The great discovery was that man's true essence is abstract and is expressed in obeying what Rousseau called the general will and what Kant called universal moral law. Again I quote from uh, Kant, the fragments. Quote, Rousseau set me right. From him I learned to honor man. Now compare this with Voltaire's letter to Rousseau when he received a copy from him of the essay on the origin of inequality. I have, sir, received your book against the human race and I thank you. (laughs) You see, the revolution that has occurred within a few decades. By obeying this universal moral law in this world of appearance, man is likely to be punished by unhappiness in this world. As a matter of fact, Kant tells you that unhappiness is a a sign uh, of the purity of uh, your intentions. Because if you go against your own happiness, obviously you can't have mixed motives. You see, it's a sort of an ethical, controlled experiment. But man will ultimately be compensated for this. For the world of true reality is a moral structure into which man will finally enter after death. There, God will redress the balance and reward him for happiness for the virtue that he has manifested in the world of appearance. You see, Kant's basic argument for immortality is that we need to get together happiness and morality because they're bifurcated in this world. But we need to get them together in order to form the highest good. And so there must be a next life. See the argument, the wish uh, to the assertion. But how can this happiness be gotten uh, together so as to be delivered to the good people? Why, you need some being that knows who the good people are and can see into their spirits. And you need a being with power enough to collect truckloads of hedons Units of pleasure to deliver to the good people. Therefore, there must be a being, both omniscient and omnipotent, which men call God QED. Which was, I'll be called QEV, which was wished. By obeying this universal moral law in this world of appearance, therefore, A man is punished by unhappiness, but he's rewarded in the next world. Now, all this we know by faith. Kant sums up his achievement in these words in the introduction to the Critique of Pure Reason. Quote, I have limited knowledge in order to make room for faith. Unquote. I have limited knowledge in order to make room for faith. Kant thus achieved his victory over the modern world by splitting existence into two. Appearance, which is what we call reality, and reality, which is what we call wish. He concedes to appearance the status of facts or what is. But moral ideals or what ought to be stand in contradiction to these facts. Marx in a letter to his father, November 1837, describing his Kantian period, says, quote, I believed in a complete opposition between what is and what ought to be. Unquote. Marx abandoned Kant, not at first because he thought that Kant's values were wrong. Indeed, he continued to accept them. He abandoned Kant because he believed that Kant had produced a false solution to the problem. Kant had merely split fact from moral ideals and had then told us that man must live out his life in this world in an agonized struggle between duty and impulse or St. Paul once put it, the good that I would I do not and the evil I would not that I do. That's part of the roots of Kant. But Marx retained another doctrine of Kant. This doctrine was the theory that man has a, quote, deeply concealed essence, unquote, underneath his varying forms. The doctrine that Kant received from Rousseau. This doctrine will emerge later in Marx's theory of alienation. Sometime in the late 1830s, Marx experienced a profound and thorough conversion to Hegelianism. His biographer, David McClellan, describes this as, quote, "...probably the most important intellectual step in Marx's whole life. For however much he was to criticize Hegel, Marx was the first to admit that his method stemmed directly from his master. Unquote. That's a sympathetic biographer, David McClellan. It is to Hegel's method that we must look first in order to grasp his influence on Marx. Indeed, Hegel's method is essentially Marx's method. Hegel's first principle of method was that the world must be understood in terms of process rather than in terms of things. Of course, this places him in the tradition of Heraclitus. Yes. How would Hegel have defended this? He would have said, Look. Suppose you come upon an acorn. If you just stare at the acorn, you will see it as an isolated thing. But if you want to understand it scientifically, you will see it as a transitory stage of a developing process that will ultimately emerge as an oak tree. The next principle of his method, however, is to distinguish between appearance and essence. Suppose that you had stared at the acorn and merely recorded it in your log of the day. Saw an acorn. Then, in the later entry, saw an oak. You would have been a... Saw an acorn. Saw an oak. What would you have been? An, empir- an empiricist or a positivist. Uh, who is concerned only with isolated facts or anomalous. To have true scientific knowledge, according to Hegel, you have to get below the level of appearances like acorns and oaks and to see the essence of the acorn. But this essence is radically different from the appearance. It negates the appearance. It contradicts it. To understand things scientifically, we must peer below the appearance uh, to the essence. So here is the appearance up on top here, and we're going to try to get below it uh, to the essence. Now, I'm not as good as Leonard Peacoff in getting out of these things. Uh... Uh, to understand things scientifically, we must get below that essence to get, a low, uh, to get below uh, being merely an acorn, to get below being merely a tadpole, and so on. The essence, Hegel says, negates the appearance. The essence negates the appearance. Only a thinker looking for such negations can understand a process scientifically Hegel calls this negative thinking it's the opposite of norman vincent peel uh, uh, we distinguish essence from appearance therefore we see the essence as the negation of the appearance now where would where have we looked for the essence inside the acorn Where have we found the contradiction between appearance and essence? Inside the acorn. Contradictions. Contradictions are therefore internal to each stage of the process. Indeed, there would be no process without the steady development of internal tensions. So, to understand the process that is reality, we must identify the critical internal tensions Operative at each stage of the process. This is the principle of method. Look for developing tensions. Don't just look at the pretty landscape. Study the San Andreas Fault. The San Andreas Fault, the essence is the negation of the pretty landscape, the appearance. But there will in time occur a negation of the San Andreas Fault, the earthquake. Therefore, what will ultimately emerge will be the negation of the negation, which Hegel calls actuality. This is what will ultimately emerge. Put it another way, the fault is the potentiality of the earthquake, the negation of the potentiality is actuality. All ongoing process, all history, proceeds in terms of this triad, appearance, appearance, essence, actuality. And the true method of understanding history is to understand it in terms of this triad. The ritual formula, says Marx, is affirmation, negation, negation of the negation, or to speak Greek, thesis, antithesis, and synthesis. Hegel doesn't actually use the terms thesis, antithesis, and synthesis for his own philosophy but it's a kind of a device that we use to study his thought. Now, how did Hegel work this dialectical method out in dealing with the modern world? This was done in Hegel's great book, The Philosophy of Right*. I will greatly simplify Hegel's argument. Why is the modern world a problem? It is a problem because its values are alien to Christian ideals. This is Hegel now. Its values are alien to Christian ideals. Nor does the modern world offer any ultimate encouragement to Christian hopes. What are modern values? They are the values of selfishness, of the market, of contract, of earned rewards and penalties. What are Christian ideals? They are the ideals of unselfishness, of blood and kin relations tribal relations, you see, duty, unearned love. We have here two antithetical sets of values said Hegel, another nice contradiction we can work on. Uh, these two sets of values are worked out in two institutions, the family and civil society. So the family you can regard as the thesis and civil society uh, is the antithesis. Now, Hegel is not declaring himself for or against either of these. Let us look first at the family. The family, says Hegel, and here I'm quoting, is specifically characterized by love, unquote. The family is specifically characterized by love. The true essence of love lies not in being an independent person, but in being a member of the group. Within the family, it is understood that everyone must be loyal to the group to the point of self-sacrifice. The reward for doing one's duty to the group will be warm love and acceptance, the penalty, rejection, and ostracism. If the family is the thesis, the antithesis is civil society. Civil society is the association of individuals each seeking his own selfish ends and attaining them by means of trading with others, by contractual cooperation. Individuals within civil society, said Hegel, have rights and the rights are protected by laws. The laws are applied through the courts and enforced by the police. To strip Hegel's concept to its essentials, we can say that civil society in its pure form would be a free society of laissez-faire capitalism with a government to protect the rights of its citizens. To put it in a slightly different form, it is simply the modern world in Hegel's time, represented chiefly by the Anglo-Saxon nations, which he mentions as the chief representatives of this sort of organization. Hegel, writing in 1821, rightly saw that the basic economic structure of the free society had been described by Smith and Ricardo, and he also mentioned Say. He praised them for their work in doing so, in describing the structure of civil society. It is important to note that Marx was introduced uh, to the great uh, political economists uh, by reading Hegel. Uh, And indeed, it is to Marx that we owe the term classical political economist. Hegel thought that the advantages of civil society, that is, the modern world, were obvious, and that it was a great improvement on the tribal sort of society, which was based on family values. Using the terminology of later thinkers, it might be said that in Hegel's mind, the family-based tribal society was a society of status or Gemeinschaft, a society, a community, a society of acceptance of a group of uh, brothers, a closely knit community. But that a civil society is a society of contract or Gesellschaft. Hegel distinguishes sharply between these. The tribal society expressed the interests of the universal or the public interest, whereas civil society expressed the interests of the individual. The tribal or family society treats man merely in his various roles husband, wife, father, mother, parent, child. But civil society, quite rightly, gives man the opportunity to satisfy his individual goals. Party of the first part, party of the second part, and so on. But there's something cold and unsatisfying, said Hegel, about civil society. In civil society, the individual and the government come into essentially hostile relationship. In civil society, the individual is opposed to the universal. Likewise, the relation between individuals becomes external. I will give you this satisfaction if you give me that satisfaction. The result is a false concept of freedom, namely the Anglo-Saxon concept of freedom, says Hegel. Namely, freedom from the control of others or from the state. Such freedom merely gives us license to satisfy our whims. True freedom... Is to be found at a higher stage. You see, this is German freedom coming along now. True freedom at a higher stage, which really came from Rousseau, who was not a German. This higher freedom is to be found in the state. The state with a capital S. Now, this is the synthesis of the family and civil society. The state. The state is the whole of society restructured into a quasi-religious neo-tribal community in which the substitute for piety is fervent nationalism. The state is the synthesis between the values of the family and civil society. The state takes up civil society into itself, and both the family and civil society are aufgehoben, taken up into the unity of the state. The state protects individual rights and private property, giving them sanction and definition. It guarantees individual relations and contracts. So far it preserves the virtues of civil society, but it also preserves the virtue of the, the virtues of the family. Remember what the family brings us. Community, warm relations, some of which we never asked for. Uh, like one's Jewish mother. Uh, 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 duty, self-sacrifice, love for one's father, now in the state becomes transformed into love for the fatherland. The state brings true freedom, positive freedom, rather than that negative capitalist freedom. Because the state guarantees to each individual the possibility of the development of his true personality, which is social and which is identical with the interests of the state. The idea of the true essence of man, which we saw in Rousseau and in Kant, emerges again. But in Hegel, there is a difference of emphasis. Hegel really sees the essence of man in the family as he was familiar with it in his time. He sees the appearance of man as in, given in the civil society of his time. He looks for the synthesis in the state which would give him the actuality of man. You see, follow those triads, they, they are parallel to each other. The actuality of man, therefore, emerges in the state. It's obvious that Hegel saw the Prussian state of his day as the fullest development of the state, although he does not actually say so. The ideal state, says Hegel, is characterized by a harmony of interests uh, between classes because it is administered by the one class whose private interest is identical with the public interest, the bureaucracy. In the state, we have neither tyranny nor the chaos of laissez-faire capitalism. In the state, we have true freedom. The state is associated necessarily with religion. Religion, says Hegel, is essentially philosophy clothed in sensuous images. True religion, quote, recognizes the state and upholds it, unquote. It, quote, implants a sense of unity in men's minds. In return, the state discharges a duty by affording every assistance and protection to the church and should even require all its citizens to belong to a church, unquote. Hegel's philosophy ends, therefore, in political and religious conservatism. What is the meaning, therefore, of the young Marxist conversion to Hegelianism? The answer is twofold. First, Kant taught a complete split between fact and value. Anyone who accepted this condemned himself to a life of self-reproach and of preaching at the world without any hope of changing it. Hegel, on the other hand, taught that moral ideals are realized in the march of history. And you can see the march is starting up. You can hear it in the distance like in the 1812 overture. Uh, Hegel said quote, the real is the rational and the rational is the real, unquote. Which, after all, is another way of saying that might makes right. This idea was irresistible to Marx. He said, quote, I left behind the idealism, it was Kant, I left behind the idealism which I had nourished with that of Kant and I, claim, and I came to seek the idea in the real itself. If the gods before had dwelt above the earth, they had now become its center, Now, that is the first reason why the young Marx became a Hegelian. The second reason is that he could, if he wished, avoid the conservatism of orthodox Hegelians by joining the left Hegelians, or the young Hegelians, as they were called. They were, indeed, a jolly bunch. They gathered in the beer gardens and cafés of Berlin to discuss their newfound insight into Hegel. They claimed if you looked at the Prussian state of the day, you would see that it was mere appearance, so far as harmony was concerned. Underneath it was seething with contradictions. These contradictions needed to be brought to light by criticism. Criticism. And who were the best agents for criticism? Intellectuals. And who are the intellectuals? Ourselves, sitting around drinking the beer. It is we who will in the near future occupy the most influential posts in academia and in journalism of the rising Germany. We will prove to our fathers that the pen is mightier than the sword. We will bring about a cultural revolution and supplant the bourgeois life with the bohemian. Obviously, there's more life in the old dialectic than the fuddy-duddy right-wing Hegelians ever dreamed. Now, Marx was a young man who looked forward to an academic career. It is not surprising that he joined the young Hegelians. The takeoff point was in their criticism of religion. You've got to understand this to fully understand the development of Marx's thought. Hegel had said that religion was the sensuous expression of philosophical ideas. The sensuous expression of philosophical ideal, ideas. Well, said the young Hegelians, now that we know this, we don't need religion anymore. Religion has become obsolete. And it is actually harmful, continued their leading thinker, Ludwig Feuerbach. He was the leading thinker of the... Neo-Hegelians. In his Essence of Christianity, which appeared in 1841, he expressed this point of view. He said that religion is a projection into the heavens of man's deepest longings, longings which can be satisfied only here on earth, His argument went like this. Since we can think of perfection, consciousness is perfect. What is perfect is infinite. The limits of human nature are the limits of consciousness, namely none. Therefore, human nature is infinite. Now, the infinite is God. Therefore, man is God. The essence of man is divine. Religion projects this God into the heavens. Why? Because the individual man sees himself mistakenly as individual in essence. He sees that he does not possess all virtues and perfections. He looks around and sees all the virtues and perfections which other people have. He lumps them with his own and projects the composite figure into the sky, calling it God. Then he humbly bows before this image, confessing his shortcomings. Now, according to Feuerbach, the individual is right in seeing himself as imperfect. But if the individual only looked at what he was doing in creating the composite image of God, he would see that this move is a mistake. All the alleged perfections of God are already in the species as a whole. It follows that man as a species is perfect. Man's essence is to be a species being and to live for the species, not the individual. The true bond of the species is love. As long as we believe in a transcendent God, we necessarily feel alienated from our true essence. But by calling back from the sky this projected image, becoming an atheist, you see, we can regain our essence. We see that the human species is the necessary being and we worship ourselves in the collective. Kind of tribal narcissism, you see. To this atheistic collectivism, Feuerbach added another doctrine. All true philosophy, he said, is anthropology. Everything should be reduced to man and consciousness. But consciousness is not only rational, it's sensuous. And sensation is the negation of thought. He's coming back now, way down. He's diving down from the floating abstraction to the concrete. Quote, being is one with eating. Only in eating does the empty concept of being acquire content. Food is the beginning of wisdom. If you want to improve the people, then instead of preaching against sin, give them better food. Derman man ist fast er Man is what he eats. (laughs) Now remember the beggar's opera, bread first. Uh, In the 20th century this, this doctrine came down. It's easy to see how these concepts, the human essence, alienation, man as a species would have appealed to Marx. As a matter of fact, he adopted them and developed them. It is of some importance to note that Marx's atheism and materialism did not have their roots in rational argument, but in this emotional worship of the collective ego, not even ultimately in materialism. Ultimately, we can trace this doctrine in German thought all the way back to Meister Eckhart in the the mystic of the 14th century. It is this doctrine which forms the basis of the so-called humanistic Marxism of today. Now Marx received his doctoral degree in philosophy in 1841 from the University of Jena, which was known as a diploma mill. And he fully, he fully expected to get his academic, an academic post in philosophy. But this became impossible when the Prussian government suddenly cracks down on the whole young Hegelian ring. So Marx spent a year as a journalist, during which time uh, he came increasingly to believe in the oppressiveness of the Prussian government, and that this oppressiveness had its roots in eating, in motives that were basically economic. The suppression of his newspaper uh, in 1843 in response to his flaming articles, gave him the opportunity to go into seclusion and to re-examine Hegel's political philosophy the result of which he wrote a criticism, a critique of Hegel's philosophy of right. Uh, In that uh, critique, he uh, attacked Hegel's basic claim that the modern world is recognized, uh, is brought up and reconciled with communal values in the Prussian state. Uh, the, the state uh, The state, Marx said, the Prussian state, Uh, is merely the governing committee of the chief private interests of civil society. Every man, he said, leads a double life, a political one as a member of the state and a private one as a member of civil society. In civil society, man is a selfish individual. He leads an existence in disagreement with his nature, which is unselfish. Only through the state would he be able to bring his life in accordance with his nature. But the Prussian state, uh, because of the imperfections of civil society, cannot offer him more than an, than an illusory life as a political being. Now, Hegel's reconciliation of public and private interest must therefore be abandoned. A revolutionary solution to the problem of the modern world must be found. A solution which consists not of thoughts, but of deeds. A solution that is not conceptual, but material. A solution of blood and guts. This solution could only come about by Marx's conversion to communism, which came in 1844. Now... Uh, what form communism took in Marx's mind, we shall in the next lecture investigate systematically. Up to this point, we have been laying the foundation of this systematic structure by tracing its premises in German philosophy and showing how these premises gradually worked themselves to a crescendo in the life of the young Marx. This was necessary as an introduction. For as Marx's collaborator, Friedrich Engels wrote in 1843, this is an important quote now, quote, The Germans are a philosophical nation and they will accept communism as soon as it is founded on sound philosophical principles, chiefly if it is derived as an unavoidable conclusion from their own philosophy. And this is our task. This is what we have to do now. Our party has to prove that either all the philosophical efforts of the German nation from Kant to Hegel have been useless, worse than useless, or that they must end in communism, that the Germans must either reject their great philosophers whose name they hold up as the glory of their nation, or they must adopt communism. I trust that our intellectual journey of this morning has laid the foundation for showing that the tradition of Kant and Hegel prepared for the modern world a witch's brew, even more potent than the one which perished in the bunkers of Berlin. Thank you. Open to questions? Yes, sir. Um, it, it sounded to me when you were talking about the four the young the aliens uh, that the, the, their, their emphasis on the, the centrality of love sort of uh, seemed reminiscent to me of the uh, uh, the counterculture of the 60s. Uh, yes. Could you tell me why why love is such a central concept for both of us? Uh. <laughs> because the counterculture of the 60s was pervaded by young Hegelian notions uh, uh, through a main conductor pipe of a professor who taught on this campus, uh, Herbert Marcuse. Uh, That's the part of the story. There's a lot more to it, of course. Yes? Um, I'm struck by... I, don't know, maybe, I wonder if there's a parallel between your appearance essence, actuality thing there, and the appearance versus uh, uh, numinal reality. Uh, is there, is there well, that? there's no noumenal reality in Hegel. Actuality is what emerges in history as the uh, synthesis of everything. And so there uh, the. Uh, in Kant, you have appearance versus essence. The essence is the noumenal reality, you see. But Hegel has added actuality, and he has embraced the whole thing, both affirming it and denying it at the same time. Is that right? He does have something. Not a Kantian essence, because a Kantian essence is in principle unobservable. Whereas the, if you look beneath the surface of society, uh, you'll see this is not really a free nation, but uh, our government is merely the governing committee of the bourgeoisie. That's the essence, and you can see it if you study the thing dialectically. So, allegedly you can not observe it. Yes, sir. During the time that there were the young rebellions on campus, so to speak, was there a corresponding young capitalists on campus? Was there any enthusiasm in the young students for the modern world? So to speak? There were a few, but they were regarded as what narcs or uh, 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 <laughs> CIA representatives or whatnot would be regarded as today. This gentleman with the green shirt said he, uh, you, mentioned, you mentioned that uh, uh, Engels wrote this in 1843, but they met. No, they hadn't yet met, but Engels was talking about the, the new communist movement they were about to meet. Yes, sir. Uh, the gentleman in the background... The question is, where did the quotation by Engels come from? It came from an article that Engels wrote in an English magazine edited by the utopian socialist uh, uh, Robert Owen. Yes? you have a copy of your text, therefore that's I know I would like to buy one.
1: Buy a copy of
0: the text? I just more or less finished it, writing it in longhand last night, but uh, <laughs> I, I, I I don't know. I just have to see. I, just, I have a question. If, if Marxism has its base in Christian morality, as it does, are the groups that are trying to fuse Christianity and Marxism today going back to that mood and trying to bring that out? Or not? Now, I hope to show next time that Marx uh, really abandoned certain fundamental concepts of Christian morality and he substituted another uh, ethical view of man, which I'm going to call Promethean man, uh, but uh, it's still retaining several features of the Christian view. So there's a kind of a rough overlap between Christian and Marxist values, but at a certain point they contradict each other. Uh, and I'm going to try to go into that next time. It's a, so there's a kind of an unhappy marriage, uh, what you have in liberation theology, you say. So they can get together on certain points. Yes? Uh, where did Marx pick up on Meister Eckhart? Well, uh, Meister Eckhart, a Dominican mystic uh, of the late Middle Ages, uh, believed that in the deepest mystical experience, you see that your own ego is divine. Uh, and uh, you, you find this uh, running through a great deal of German thought, the exaltation of the, of the aspirations of the ego. Uh, but it goes back far beyond Meister Eckhart to the Neoplatonists, as a matter of fact. And uh, uh, you can see it really... Uh, its ultimate roots, believe it or not, in Aristotle's concept that the intellect of man uh, fundamentally has no identity as such because it has to take into itself all the forms of everything else. Uh, and uh, that after death, as Aristotle taught in the psychology, uh, or seemed to teach at least, uh, uh, the, uh, that pure intellect will be immortal. But then... My pure intellect uh, will have subtracted from it all my memories, desires, and sensations. Your pure intellect will have subtracted from it all memories, desires, and sensations. So, what will be the difference between us? It will be a kind of species intellect. So, was a materialist. Oh no! This is all on a spiritual level until Marx finally makes it vigorously materialistic. Uh, was there a single influence uh, that Marx uh, drew his materialism from? Uh, well, he wrote his doctoral dissertation on the Greek atomists, and he was always somewhat interested in materialism. Uh, but the young Hegelians were well on the way, you see, <laughs> to a quite materialistic outlook even uh, before Mark. So part of it he got from the young Hegelians. Yes? Earlier you reported having us saying real is irrational the and the rational is the real. And then you said that this is tax balance. You're saying I makes right. Yeah. The well, he means that whatever wins out that is the real on the stage of history is what can be justified rationally. So therefore... Uh, the absolute monarchy can be justified rationally as long as the absolute monarchs are powerful enough to keep themselves from being overthrown. Comes the revolution, uh, and uh, the, the republic can be justified, you say. So you keep justifying and justifying and justifying. And it is simply adherence to whatever has emerged as the most powerful status quo. Yes. How he reject religion? Well, he didn't go up into religion ever. Uh, I mean, he was brought up in religion. As in, I mean, Marx himself. Now, that Feuerbach, Feuerbach claim that man is full of all these wonderful, glorious, unfulfilled desires. Now, he. It's a kind of an adolescent, uh, uh, kind of a basic physical mysticism, so to speak. You're just filled with all this energy and all these unfulfilled desires and so forth. And you find that this, in this poor old world, I mean, you simply, I mean, look at your parents, look at all these fuddy-duddy people and so on. They're controlling people. And you, suddenly, some young people uh, become. Uh, children of God or something like that. And they project all these aspirations of theirs into the sky. And then uh, they bow before it, confess their sins and so forth and so on. And uh, there is God up there. So now, says Feuerbach, we must realize that this is merely the psychological mechanism of projection. Call back from the sky that image of yourself and live on earth, really live it up. You see, and express yourself freely, and you'll have all the joy and so on of which mysticism is merely a pale, that's religious mysticism is a pale reflection. Yes. This gentleman. Uh, It seems to me that running through the world of German philosophy, more than any other position that I've encountered, is this idea that whatever appears to be is really not. Uh, can you explain opening's question why threat the most common in german tradition than any other? well you 've got to distinguish between German philosophy as a whole and the German philosophy as a matter of fact, in German philosophy, you have all sorts of tendencies which don 't go along with this at all. You have the logical positivists from Vienna for instance uh, uh, which are By the German philosophy, you mean the tradition of Kant, Fichte, Schelling, Hegel, and so on. Uh, Now, why this is, is really a profound psychological question, which I don't think we have time to go into now. Uh, But uh, there is a... I'm going to try to explain it next time in in what I call the Promethean image of man. Which was particularly prevalent in Germany. Uh, so we'll try to get at that, the answer to that question next time. Yes, sir? I think you, I think you said that Hazel saw things in terms of two processes, not entities, and then, but from that, got the idea that contradictions were, it must be internal. They were internal development. That's right. But, uh, with these internal. Uh, so these contradictions to the entities or the process. If there were no entities, where were the Well, you look at what seems to be an entity. That's the acorn. It seems to be an entity, but actually it's a seething cauldron of process. Now, some of the process is the bubbles on top, but you've got to get your head down. You get your diving equipment out and get down into the interior of the seething cauldron and see what's there. So it's all really processed, but he identifies it in nouns because that's the language we're stuck with. You see? Yes, this gentleman. In the dialectic process, what happens after the synthesis? Oh, that synthesis then becomes a new thesis, which is contradicted by another antithesis. Then that is synthesized in a new synthesis, so that it keeps going like this, you see? And the, synth- the synthesis is going on and it keeps unrolling. Well, every thesis that we have has been a synthesis of something else. So we can either trace it backward or trace it forward. See? Any more questions? Yes. Now, I wanted to ask you, on your study of Marx, do you think that he could have been merely mistaken or that he was involved? Well, Uh, Was Marx, I think you mean, innocently mistaken? Or was he evil? I probably am not going to directly assert that in either of these lectures. I'm going to just let it, in any of these lectures, I'm just going to let it show itself, as some philosophers (laughs) say. Because it's it's diaphanous. (laughs) As David Kelly would say, it's diaphanous. Uh, uh, Yes, Darlene. Uh, So you were saying that Marx went over to communism because he thought that it was a possible direction that the German philosophy was taking. As a matter of fact, he went over to communism because he thought that communism was the only way by which he could really start stirring up trouble. Uh, he was afraid there wasn't enough going on. And for a little while, he was a revolutionary but not a communist. And when he was running uh, the Rhineland Daily Times, as I'm translating the title of the newspaper, he, even, he almost fired his drama critic uh, for uh, secretly and, and subtly trying to smuggle communist ideas into his theater column. So Marx was at one time a, co- a kind of anti-communist, it came a McCarthy age, you might say, for <laughs> a short time, until he found the true revolutionary crux—the uh, uh, the, the, the class that would bring, uh, yes. Just um, so you said that um, Marx was influenced by Kant through his dichotomy between fact and value. Can you elaborate on how that influenced communism? Well. Uh, Communism claims that any such contradictions are ultimately synthesized in the uh, new Marxist revolution and that Marxism will, in its unrolling, it will reconcile all these apparent surface conflicts. So the new man, and I'm going to read you a quotation from Trotsky later on, the new man will emerge in which there are no such contradictions and apparent contradictions yes before Marx well uh, I I think I'll just say that until next time it's a small thing and yet uh, it takes up time are we getting toward the end Uh, they were they were utopian communists that you may possibly have heard of um And they were people who just dreamed of establishing a kind of ideal society like uh, Skinner's Walden, too, you know. And then there were a group of people uh, that uh, went back to the French Revolution. They had a straight tradition. They're called Babouvists, B-A-B-O-U-V-I-S-T-S, a conspiracy a French uh, uh, extreme uh, Jacobin who uh, intended to uh, overthrow the whole uh, French revolutionary government and institute a society enforcing complete equality. So when Marx went to Paris, uh, he got into a very living touch with these small groups. Uh, there was particularly a group called the League of the Outlaws uh, uh, which later became transformed into the League of the Just, which later became transformed into the Communist League, uh, and he himself wrote the manifesto for this Communist League. So it was a small and thin movement before this time. Uh, yes, Anne. You that one the that took back the I can't hear you. I mean, the Kierkegaardian, if I said it was incredibly anything, I mean, it might be incredibly long to take an incredibly long time to explain it. Uh, but it, it goes something like this, that uh, uh, reason is really based on faith anyway. So you have to choose between different faiths. Now, that's an example of this uh, incredible corruption. Uh, the ideas that you get... Uh, uh, in uh, the theological suspension of the ethical and so forth, in Kierkegaard, the uh, the, justific- the type of justification for Christianity that you get in Dostoevsky—that if there were no if there were no God, we would all be violent, homicidal maniacs, in essence. Now, there's an example of a corrupt. Uh, uh, ep- a corrupt way of coming to know that there is a God. You see? In that sense. Yeah.